0: welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Romans, the third chapter, Romans 3. In preparation for the Lord's table this morning, I want us to consider the passage here in Romans. However, I want to kind of set the the doctrinal table for us uh, by looking at a few other passages and really considering God's glory in the gospel and how important it is to understand clearly the gospel message. The book Nine Marks of a Healthy Church tells of a newspaper article that ran in an English paper about 125 years ago. The local news item was telling the story about a pastor who was being honored by some people in the church and they were going to present him with a gold-headed cane. The problem was that when the story ran, somehow the typesetter mixed two stories together. That story and a story about a patent on a pig-killing, sausage-making machine. And somehow they got blended together. Here's how a portion of that mangle story went. Several of Reverend Dr. Mudge's friends called upon him yesterday, and after a conversation, the unsuspecting pig was seized by the hind leg and slid upon, along a beam until he reached the hot water tank thereupon he came forward and said that there were times when the feelings overpowered one and for that reason he would not attempt to do more than thank those around him for the manner in which such a huge animal was cut into fragments was simply astonishing the doctor concluded his remarks when the machine seized him and in less time than it takes to write the pig was cut into fragments and worked into a delicious sausage the occasion will long be remembered by the doctor's friends as one of the most delightful in their lives. The best pieces can be procured for 10 pence a pound, and we are sure that those who have sat long under his ministry will rejoice that he was treated so handsomely. Now, while that write-up may be humorous, it certainly is not clear. We get the idea that something bad happened to the pig, and we hope that something good happened to Dr. Mudge. You know, the gospel is good news. Yet too often, the message lacks clarity. It gets muddled and confused. Such things as religious tradition, personal experience, and philosophical concepts get mixed in with the truth of of God's word. And people come away thinking that, that something good will happen to a select group of people, and they're a part of that. And that something bad will happen to another distant group, but that doesn't apply to them. And instead of hearing a clear gospel message, you end up getting a hodgepodge of ideas. In fact, if I were to ask you this morning to take a couple of minutes and turn to the person sitting next to you and give a clear, concise statement of the gospel message, could you do it? Could you present the, the gospel without it becoming some kind of a philosophical sausage making? And if if the very idea of that makes you a little bit nervous, how clearly do you think the gospel is to your co-workers, to your neighbors? Do you think they understand the message of the gospel? You know, the word gospel literally means good news. So, for it to be news, it has to have content. And for it to be good, it has to be accurate. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. What is the good news of the gospel? The good news of the gospel is the clear message of justification through faith alone in Christ alone. And our text this morning is found in the first epistle listed in our Bibles. And although it's not the first epistle written, it really is a, a preeminent statement of the great doctrinal clarity of the message of salvation. I mean, this, the epistle of, of, to the Romans was one, really the one that helped birth the Reformation. Marth, Martin Luther said this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament, the very purest gospel. And he recommended that all Christians memorize all of it. If Romans is the mountain range of the epistles when it comes to sharing the gospel message, then this text in Romans 3, verses 21 through 26, is the pinnacle of that range. In fact, Luther considered this passage as the chief point and central place of the entire epistle of Romans and of the entire Bible. So I want us to consider this. Read it first. Then we're going to kind of broaden back out and then come back and land in this passage. If you have your Bibles open to Romans 3, follow with me. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. And we'll read down through verse 26. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference." For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate that the, at the present time His righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's look to the Lord. Father, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that our hearts would be receptive to the truth, that we would meditate upon the price that was paid for our salvation, and that your Holy Spirit would work in our lives to draw us close to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In these verses, we have seen that the good news of the gospel is that clear message of justification. There's justification by grace alone. It comes through faith alone, and it's in Christ alone. And I want us to understand this, but by, to understand, I want us to back up a little bit first so that we, we discover the gospel personally. That's the first thing that we need to see, that we need to discover the gospel personally. And for this, I'd like to have you turn back with me or turn over to the next epistle to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because in this passage, the gospel is summarized. It's summarized in the the opening verses. And I want us to see this summary. Then we're going to look at it a little more and then we're going to come back and land in Romans chapter 3. But there's a very important aspect. The importance of the gospel is stated in verses 1 and 2. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what we see here are several things. As as Paul is now speaking to the church at Corinth, and this is going to be dealing with the resurrection, this entire chapter, but he says this is not a new gospel. This is the gospel that I preached to you. First thing that we see is the gospel is preached. It's the, the preaching of the gospel. You know, we live in a day when people want new and improved, and many churches are saying, well, we need to do things different. We need something new and exciting. No, it's the preaching of the word that is necessary god chose the foolishness of preaching the message preached to save those who believe that's what paul told this church in first corinthians 1 verse 21 and so there's a priority to preaching that's that's why our auditorium is laid out this way with the pulpit in the middle that's why we come to church we need the preaching of the word We don't come to church to hang out in the hallways to talk about ministry, to talk about music, to fellowship. There's time for that. But the priority is to be under the preaching of the Word. That we need that. We all need that. I need that. The preaching of the Word. We see as well in this passage that they received the gospel. This speaks of the salvation that came through faith. It's not enough to simply hear preaching. We have to respond. So they had received it because at the end of verse 2, he said, unless you have believed in vain. You know, as as Christians, we are called believers. We're we're not referred to as repenters or confessors, even though those are elements of the gospel. But it's the belief with the heart one believes unto righteousness, We're not even called converters or converts, even though that's all true. In 2 Timothy 4.12, Paul told Timothy, be an example of the believers because we receive the word by faith. And then in that word, the third thing that we see in this passage is we stand. We don't believe in vain. And so the importance of standing, it says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. We can stand confidently without shame, shame because I know who I have believed, as Paul told Timothy. And I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Because the fourth thing that we saw, see in these verses is we're saved by the gospel saving faith must have content it's not faith in faith it's faith in Christ so so what is the content that we have of the gospel and that's really what's laid out in verses 3 and 4 the content is specified for I delivered to you first of all that which is of primary importance that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, according to the scriptures, and that he rose again, according to the scriptures. That we have the scriptural content. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. This is the heart of the gospel. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Now, the rest of chapter 15, and we're not going to look at that this morning, But it it talks about the resurrection the proof of the resurrection the importance of it the place of it the power of the resurrection all of that is expanded in the rest of first corinthians 15. but i wanted to bring us to these opening verses so that you can see the concise statement of the priority in of the gospel so the question then is where do we find the details about these events where, where are we introduced and where does Scripture record this information? Well, we find it in the four books called the Gospels. The Gospel is introduced in the Gospels. And so the opening books of the New Testament are bringing us to this introduction, it says in matthew chapter 1 verse 1 and really matthew is presenting christ as the messiah the king as he writes to the jews in chapter 1 verse 1 it says the book of the genealogy or generation of jesus christ the son of david the son of abraham so matthew writing to a jewish audience presents jesus as the messiah from the lineage of david how does mark's gospel begin well in mark 1 1 it says the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god so mark begins by emphasizing that jesus christ is god his deity now he's writing to the romans he's going to show jesus as the perfect servant but he begins in the very first verse by pointing out his deity. And we could, we could expand on the other gospels and show this as well. For sake of time, I'm not going to do that this morning. But John really concludes by, with his priority of, in John 20 verse 31, it says, these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the so- Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. So the Gospels focused on the, the person of Jesus Christ, his work, his teaching. So with 89 chapters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how are they divided? You know, we might think, okay, there's three years of public ministry. That's about 30 chapters per year. That's really not what we find. In fact, over 25 chapters of the Gospels are the last week of Christ's life. So what's the emphasis the death, burial, and resurrection. There's a particular emphasis on that. And I'm telling you this, and I'm spending time here because the gospel is not a slogan. It's not a word that we tack on to other things to make it sound super spiritual. The gospel is Jesus Christ. The gospel is about Christ. And so we're introduced to it in the gospels, and then the gospel is explained in the epistles. And so now let me have you turn to Romans 1. We'll go back to our text. We'll work into it from here. But in Romans chapter 1, and understand, you are not going to understand the gospel clearly unless you understand the epistles, and particularly Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. Those three epistles really zero in on clarifying what the gospel message is. But in Romans chapter 1, look at verse 1 with me. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now again, in introducing this epistle, Paul, formerly Saul, who had been a violent opponent to the followers of Jesus, is now separated or set apart for the sake of the gospel of God. And verse 2 tells us that this was the message, this gospel was promised in the Old Testament. That it was promised by the, it was told by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's referring to the Old Testaments. So what does verse 3 then tell us about the gospel? Well, it tells us, first of all, the gospel is about Jesus Christ. That's what we see in verse 3 concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And what do we find out about him? Well, he was born of the seed of David. Where did we see that? Matthew 1.1. And that he's declared to be the Son of God. Where did we see that? Mark 1.1. That both of these Gospels are introducing us to the very thing that we find in the opening verses of Romans. Romans. And beyond that, then it says the gospel is confirmed by the resurrection. And that's what we see in verse 4 here. That the gospel is about Jesus Christ, and it's confirmed by the resurrection and declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And then if you read in Acts chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, you find the emphasis on the resurrection. And I'm spending time here because we have to be careful that we do not depersonalize the gospel. The gospel is not a buzzword. It's about Jesus Christ. The heart of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. And this is important because humanity's greatest need is not education. It's not just the teaching of Jesus. Oh, we need to look at his teaching. Yes, that's part of it. But it's more than that. It's not, well, we need to follow his example and live a good life. No, we need more than that. It's not just the life of Jesus. It's not some traumatic experience. Well, if I could just get in touch with the miracles of Jesus. No, our need is salvation, which is provided through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. His death, burial, and resurrection. So the question that we have to ask as we consider this is, do you stand in salvation's power through Christ alone. Do you have that relationship? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you a believer in Christ, the Son of God? Because it says further in this very first chapter of Romans in verses 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek for it is the righteousness of god is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the just shall live by faith so the gospel reveals the righteousness of god and that those who are justified will live by faith now the words righteousness and justified speak of the same thing they they both are speaking of the quality of being right or literally the it's being straight It means meeting the standard of righteousness. And and where do we find that standard? The standard is God. And so what we need to understand then, the second point I want us to consider, the main point is defining the gospel properly is vital. And we find that really laid out back in chapter 3. So let me have you turn back to Romans chapter 3. I've given you the tried to set the table very quickly. We could spend a lot of time on those points, but understanding what we find here, because verse twenty-one makes it clear that keeping the law is not going to save. That's what verses nineteen and twenty led us into. That that by by keeping the law, no one's going to be justified. So the righteousness of God comes apart from keeping the law, and the importance of that. And, and understanding this, and, and you see, I've, I've highlighted the words righteousness in, in these verses. Righteousness in, in verse 21, righteousness in verse 22. These, it's the same word being used. In, in verse 24, uh, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption is, that is in Christ Jesus. And then in the coming verses, in verses 25 and 26, we see again the, the righteousness. Righteousness that he might be just and the justifier. And it's pulling together the idea that in the Old Testament, people were looking forward to God would provide a sacrifice. We look back, but it's at the cross that this takes place. And so we, we understand what is taking place here that because both Jews and, and Gentiles, those under the law, those with the law, and those without law, are in the same place. There is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because all are sinners, there is salvation available to all. That's the context here. So the first word I want us to see in this passage that is vital to understanding the gospel is the word justification. Justification. We find that in verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's it's the root word that's actually used seven times, the root word in these verses. Righteousness that we've seen in verses 21, 22, 25, and 26. Justified and just in verses 24 and 26. It's the idea, if you, if you were with us when we considered the breastplate of righteousness as part of the armor of God, one of the illustrations that I used was the illustration of weighing produce on a scale. And that for it to be a righteous transaction, the scale had to be accurate and the payment had to be equivalent. But understand it, it's more than that. The picture of the scale is really the picture that is used for justice. I mean, this, is, this is the scale that is used to, to speak of justice. And when you talk about the gospel and asking people about going to heaven, how many people say, well, I think if I put my good works on one side of the scale and my bad works on the other side of the scale, as long as my good works outweigh my bad works, I'll be good. That's not how this scale works. All of our works will be put on one side and the glory of God is put on the other. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that scale goes like this. There's no closeness in that. And so understanding this, that what we do, our sin will be weighed against the glory of God and His righteousness. So what do we need? We need pardon. We need help. The the key word in justification is that word pardon because it says in in the Old Testament in Exodus 23 verse 7 I will not justify or acquit the wicked the statement in Romans 3 is the first use where it speaks of justify this is the first use in this epistle that's being used in a saving manner it talks about the justice of God earlier but here and and the, and the verb is passive what that means is something has to be done to us It's not something we do. We don't justify ourselves. We need to be justified. Well, how does that happen? Someone has to pay the price. Because all have sinned, all are savable, there's no difference, but God is just and the justifier, so somebody has to pay the price. To be justified then means to be declared innocent. To be condemned means to be found guilty. So where would this take place? It takes place in the courtroom and that's what we really see that justification is a legal term that it's being declared righteous and treated as such the second word that we see here is the word redemption we see that at the in the second part of verse 24 the redemption that is in christ jesus Now, to redeem something in our day is the the idea, well, if you've got a gift certificate or something, you take it in and you redeem it. You you use that for merchandise. In Paul's day, the idea of redeeming was to buy someone out of slavery. It would take place in the, the slave market and it spoke of freedom. It's freedom from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. And further on in, in Romans, in chapter 6, it, it talks about how we were slaves of sin, but we've been redeemed, and now we can serve Christ and righteousness. So what is the price that has to be paid for our redemption? Redemption is through the blood of Christ. As Ephesians 1.17 says, we have redemption through His blood. Or 1 Peter 1.19, the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It takes place in the slave market. The price is the blood that was shed. Which brings us to the third word. That's the word propitiation. And this is where our eyes start to glaze over or roll back in our heads. Okay, I don't know what this means. But this word is foundational to understanding The gospel. This word is really rests at the heart of understanding the gospel and why Christ came and what he did. The word propitiation means to turn away or appease, to turn away anger, to appease anger. And, and recognizing that the propitiation that takes place is by his blood. It's received through faith. And in doing that, God demonstrates his righteousness, his forbearance that he passed over. So, so where would this be taking place? Well, what it's speaking of in the shedding of blood, it's really speaking of atonement. And we find this in the Old Testament. There was one day every year that, that Israel would come to the tabernacle and that was called the Day of Atonement. And and the tabernacle, that portable temple where where they would come for worship, this gives you an idea of that. This is where where Israel worshipped when they came out of Egypt and before they went into the Promised Land and even as they were conquering, they would come to the tabernacle. And that's the enclosure that we see here. You know, to give you a perspective, the, the picture in the upper right-hand corner is, and this is off my Logos software, that's the size of an American football field. And we can kind of highlight that, and so you can see, and right below that, you see the size of the, the tabernacle area. Now, I purposely picked colors that had nothing to do with either of the teams this evening. <laughs> But it gives you a perspective of the size of the the tabernacle area and the arrow there is pointing to an area of the tabernacle inside that portable temple as it was referred to and that was known as the holy of holies so the day of atonement would be, take place and the propitiation would go on inside the Holy of Holies, that place where the, the priest could only answer, enter once a year, the high priest. And he would come inside and inside the Holy of Holies, among other things, was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, inside the Ark of the Covenant, this is a, an artist's rendition of that, inside the Ark of the Covenant was the law that had been broken the tablets that Moses had received above the ark was the cherubim these the the angelic beings who would worship and between the cherubim and the law that had been broken was the lid which was known as the mercy seat And it was on this mercy seat when the priest would take the blood from the sacrifice and come in, he would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. Because of the glory of God overshadowing. And understand it says in in Psalm 80, verse 1, you dwell between the cherubims. So the, the glory of God above the ark, the broken law within the ark, the blood would be sprinkled on the lid and in so doing, turn away the wrath of God. That was propitiation. That was the place of the propitiation, the turning away of God's wrath because the price had been paid for the broken law. Now, I'm laying this out because when you come to Hebrews chapter 9, it describes the tabernacle It talks about the Holy of Holies. It talks about what's in the Ark of the Covenant. There's more besides the the broken law, but that's our focal point this morning. And then in verse 5 it says of of Hebrews 9, "...and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, the place of propitiation." The mercy seat was the place this takes place. Now, when Jesus offered the sacrifice... He was the first high priest who did not bring a sacrifice. He himself was the sacrifice. He didn't have to first atone for his sin as every other high priest did. But he came and was the sacrifice. So Hebrews 7.27 says, He did once for all when he offered up himself. That's why he could cry, It is finished. And so what we see in this is that God's wrath is turned away by Christ's blood and righteousness. That's why we sang that song. Because God is just, we need to realize every sin must be and will be punished. And it's either going to be punished at the cross by the one who took our place for those who believe in him, or for those who do not receive Christ, they will pay the penalty for their sin in eternal punishment for all eternity. Because God is just. And so what we see in these verses that we've been set free from sin, that we understand that this is taking place, but when it talks about that He is just and the justifier, that, that God would be viewed as righteous, why would God's righteousness be called into question? because he didn't judge all the sin in the Old Testament immediately. The sacrifices were looking forward to Christ paying the price for those sins, that he would bear that price. Folks, this is important because all of our sins were paid for before we were even born. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, all your sins were paid for, past, present, and future, for justification. And that took place at the cross. But in the Old Testament, it's like, why isn't God dealing with them? Because he's looking forward to his son. Now, I say that because aren't there times we get upset? Well, why do they get away with that? Why isn't God dealing with them now? The forbearance, the mercy of God, that is because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is long-suffering to us. And so when we think we know justice better than God, we need to understand His grace and mercy. Because I don't want God's justice. I want and need His mercy. And believe me, you don't want His justice. When you understand the holiness of God, I, I was... In numbers the, yesterday, and I was struck by how various tribes had responsibility in taking care of the tabernacle, and, and who was in charge of the, the, the lines, the, you know, the lines that would hold it up, and the, the pins, and the tent, and, and it said, and if anybody approached that wasn't supposed to, they were to be killed. We think so lightly of sin that we fail to realize that God will punish every sin because He is righteous. Why aren't they getting what they deserved? Because Christ died to pay that price. God's glory is that He provided His only begotten Son. He provided the way, the sacrifice to turn away, to propitiate His wrath and redeem us from the marketplace of sin and declare us just so we come to second corinthians 5 21 our opening song this morning his robes for mine really come from this verse for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of god in him do we understand that your sin my sin is credited to christ that Jesus paid the penalty by shedding his blood. The the wages of sin, what it deserves, is death. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. So Christ died for our sins. But do you understand when it comes to the scale, all that does is get us back to zero. All that does is remove the debt that we could never pay. It it simply gets us back to that place of of, really where Adam was. The sin is not counted against us. But it takes more than not having sin to get into heaven. We need his righteousness. And if Adam couldn't do it when he was created in holiness, what makes us think we'll do it? And that's why it's Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. We need both. That's the gospel that he had to live a perfect, sinless, holy life, be born as a human, the God-man, live a perfect, sinless life, and then die to pay the penalty for our sin as humans, but also have lived that perfect life. We need both. The the debt is, is off the scale when Christ died, but we need righteousness, and it's Christ's righteousness is credited to us. Our sin is credited to him. His robes for mine. I give him my sinful robes. He gives me his robe of righteousness. And what does that do? That makes us children and heirs, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So that's why we sang, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. There is so much meaning in that old hymn written by Count von Zinzendorf many many years ago but understanding the importance folks do we realize there is coming a day a final judgment when all the books will be open and it will be a record of everything that was done in childhood how we treated others our teenage years what we did in college college activities how you deal with others in business how you treat your spouse, how you treat your children because every sin must be paid for. And if you've accepted Jesus Christ, it's already off the books. If you have not, there will come that day and whoever's name is not found written in the book of life will have to pay for their sins for all eternity. There's a picture of this in the New Testament as Jesus is talking about two men who come praying one is a Pharisee the other is a tax collector ones of the religious elite the other is a religious outcast the tax collectors were were outcast to the Jewish people because they were working with Rome and and when they they come we find it in Luke chapter 18 the Pharisee comes and he highlights his personal righteousness he said, I thank God I'm not like this tax collector. And I'm not like these other people. I don't do these really flagrant sins. I avoid those. And then he re- notes his religious activity, that he fasts, he ties, he gives. He does good deeds. But we see the response of the other man, the tax collector, standing afar off. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven he beat on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. The statement, God, be merciful to me, literally is God propitiate to me because I am a sinner. Turn away your anger turn away your wrath where did it get turned to Jesus Christ he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might receive his righteousness so as we come to the Lord's table the question for us is have you come to that point have you humbled yourself before the Lord trusting in Christ alone or you think well if I do good things I'm, I'm a church member I've been baptized I have good deeds you know what weigh that against the glory of God and you are in trouble Because even our good works are like filthy rags. The real question is, have we been justified? This man went down to his house. He no longer had to have his face cast down or stand afar off because he was brought near. Have you been justified by faith alone in Christ alone? I've tried to give us the gospel clearly this morning. It's good news about Jesus Christ. It's the message that he died for our sins. He was buried and rose again, conquering sin and death. The good news is that we as sinners have been justified, redeemed, and propitiated by the cross work of Jesus Christ. And so when we come to this table, that's what we're remembering. That we must not take it lightly. Sometimes we call it communion. And that's a good term because it speaks of having communion with God. God and sinners reconciled. That we can come into the presence of a holy God not because of our righteousness, but we are wearing Jesus' robes. But it also speaks of communion because we have fellowship with one another. We've been reconciled to other people. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, it says, when you come... And bring a gift. If you remember that another believer has something against you, go make that right first. And in just a moment, we're going to partake and I will read from 1 Corinthians 11 where the Lord's table is laid out. But you know, the introductory verses to chapter 11, when we come into the first part of 1 Corinthians 11, it deals with the confrontation of divisions within the body. Folks, when we come to the Lord's table, we have to take this seriously. So it says in that chapter in in 1 Corinthians, let everyone examine themselves and let us judge ourselves. So how are we doing? We invite you to partake if, number one, you've been saved by faith alone. That is the prerequisite. Then, if you're not harboring known, unconfessed sin. Because we're coming because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, how can we look lightly on the sin that caused Him to die, and then that we're living in obedience? Is there a problem with somebody else? You know, we, we we have a large auditorium. You can sit on one side and somebody else can sit on the other and never really talk to them, but there can be a wall. One of the reasons we come to the Lord's table is to make sure that we have a good relationship with one another. So I want to invite you to examine yourself. And if you are able to properly partake, so partake. But to examine ourselves so that we are not chastened of the Lord. So I'd like us to bow for prayer.